0: So the title of my message is, uh, We Are Blessed to Be Together. And I think this is the, the message of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 15 to 16. Now, people like to get together. In fact, uh, across the world, people have built some pretty massive stadiums, for example, so that people could come together and watch various sporting events. Some of the biggest stadiums of the world hold over 100,000 people. So there's a stadium, for example, in India. It's a cricket stadium called the Motera Cricket Stadium. This building is so huge, you can seat 110,000 spectators in it. In Michigan, the Michigan Stadium, where football is played, can seat 107,651 people. And then in North Korea, and of course, it's hard to get information out of North Korea, but there's a stadium there that purportedly seats somewhere between 114,000 and 150,000 people. These are massive structures where you could pack half the city of Windsor easily into them. Spectator sports are well attended. Now, the problem is that sometimes among God's people, we take our churches and our desire to get together in fellowship and we turn them into spectator sports. This is one of the problems in the Western church. And I think it's one of the reasons why people are so eager to get on Zoom church because they're used to just spectating at church. It really makes no difference whether they're watching the show live or they're watching it online because many people in the North American church have a spectator mindset the mindset that says, no, I come to observe, not to serve. You know, I'm here to watch, I'm here to benefit but I'm not really here to connect. I'm not really here to pour out my time, talents, and treasures for the cause of the kingdom. Now, we all know that it's open season on the church. Deer hunting season just ended in our province, and it's open season on the church. People like to pick on the church, and they always have. And one of the the recycled assaults it's not particularly new. One of the recycled assaults that people often levy against large churches like ours is that well, we're just about spectatorism. We're just, a big, we're just a big box church. Some would say we're a mega church, hardly. But we're just a church where people come to observe. And why is it necessary for us to meet? Why is it necessary for us to fellowship together? The reality is, is that some large churches are spectator sports. But you know what? I've been in some small churches that are also like spectator sports. When I was a younger pastor, I was serving in a church. And shortly after my arrival, uh, the leadership of the church got together and they said, you know, we have, I don't know what it was, 100 people or something on our membership list that haven't been to our church in years. So they divided up the leaders of the church and we went out to visit different people and say, look, you know, church means something. You haven't been to church for two, three, four, five, six, seven years you know, what's up? And it was amazing how many people were offended by that. They said, This is this is our church. How how dare you try to take us off the membership list? And we're thinking to ourselves, you don't even come to our church anymore. And when you do, you certainly don't serve. You're not even known in the life of our church. This is a problem across North America. And we're going to learn today that church is not a spectator sport. We're going to be reminded, and of course we can find this in the broader teachings of the New Testament, that the church is a spiritual family. How many years would it take before you got into trouble with your family, if you never showed up for dinner, never donned the doorstep anymore, never had a conversation? I mean, that would be ludicrous. If I never showed up to my home, Never spent time with my wife, my children. You would all say, man, what an incompetent husband. What an incompetent father. And yet we have Christians that think it's perfectly normal to just spectate from the sidelines and not participate in the life of the church. And yet we're going to learn in this passage today that we are blessed to be together as a church family. We are so blessed to be together as a church family. And in this text, we're going to discover three blessings of church life. And here's the first one. Talk about practical. The blessing of mutual encouragement. We all need to be encouraged. And one of the things that we receive when we gather as the body of Christ is the blessing of mutual encouragement. As Paul teaches the church, he begins by admitting to the tough struggles of ministry. Ministry is tough. Serving the Lord Jesus Christ is tough. And there's two reasons why it's tough. You'll see this in the text. The first is external threats. Attacks, accusations, falsehoods from without. The second one is internal fears. Our own doubts, our own lack of courage, our own lack of faith can erode our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and our desire to want to serve him and be together with God's people. Look what the Bible says beginning with verse 5 of chapter 7. For even when we came into Macedonia, that's the region within which they would travel through to get to Corinth, our bodies had no rest. Why? Why were they so depleted? It says, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without external threats, and fear within, internal doubts. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by what? What does it say? By the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, by the church. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. You know, we often speak in our churches of the God of comfort. We talk about God's comfort, God's presence, the blessing of relationship with God, and that is absolutely and totally true. You can be on an island all by yourself, and God can bring great comfort into your life. But sometimes we get a little more, shall we say, super spiritual than we perhaps should be. And we fail to acknowledge that God uses human structures and human beings and circumstances to bless us and encourage us. God uses people. So yeah, on one hand we could say God is enough, Jesus is enough, and that's true. But the New Testament also teaches us that God uses people to provide us with that enough that we so desperately need to continue to flourish. How does God comfort? Well, it says here, God comforted them by the coming of Titus. Titus showed up as God's agent, as a man of God to teach and minister in the church. And the church was comforted by that, and Paul was blessed by that. And then as Titus poured out his life, preaching and ministering in the Corinthian church, he was encouraged by the Corinthian church and then took that back to Paul. You see, we are incarnate beings. We're physical entities. We're social beings and relational beings. We don't do well in isolation. We don't do well outside of community. The biblical vision is not me and Jesus just hanging out all by ourselves all the time. The biblical vision is that we would have this radical understanding that we are part of a body, a spiritual family. And just as Titus blessed the church, I should bless you. And just as the church blessed Titus, so you bless me. And then we bless the people around us. There's a mutuality to ministry. Titus stepped into the room physically and was a huge blessing to the church and others. Titus also then went back to bless Paul by testifying to God's work among the Corinthians. He talks about their longing, their mourning, their zeal for him, and that just caused Paul to rejoice all the more. He was energized. He was equipped by the people of God to do the work of the ministry. Church, we need to understand that God uses people to comfort people. God uses people to comfort people. Yes, God works through his Holy Spirit and the presence of Christ. And and yes, in extreme circumstances, we may find ourselves all alone and it's just God and me. But in the daily rhythms of life, God's plan and purposes and patterns is for God's people to comfort God's people. We do that through presence, as Timothy gifted the Corinthian church with. We do that through testifying to God's work among us. And fortunately, we live in a culture where there's many opportunities for us to do that kind of encouragement with one another. A well-timed phone call can be a huge blessing. A walk in the park can be a huge blessing. A kind text message can be a blessing. A nicely written letter can be a blessing. But primarily... We bless each other through presence, through mutual ministry, just as we do in our families. We need to work hard that at incarnational ministry. If you think about it, even the ordinances of the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism are very incarnational. They're hands-on. They're very tactile. You know, God, God could have said to us, um, hey church, what I want you to do is I want you to just mentally ruminate once in a while about what Jesus did on the cross. Just get together, maybe read some scripture and just think about what Jesus did on the cross. Or come together when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ and just like, have them stand up front and just sort of envision them going into a baptistry and coming back out. Just, just envision it. Just feel it in your heart. Just think it in your mind. But God doesn't do that, does He? He calls upon us to pick up the bread and the wine and ingest it. He calls us to walk into the water and be immersed. There's this sense of physicality. We are embodied beings. And when we're together and we're actively participating in something, an ordinance, or when we're offering one another a holy kiss, or we're hugging the downtrodden. We're with someone, even if we're not saying anything, we're sitting next to someone who's just experienced great loss. Or we, we visit someone in the hospital room who's dying. One of the most precious memories that I will take to my grave happened about 15 years ago when one of my good friends, who was my age, died of cancer in our church. And we went to visit him in the hospital, two or three of us, and we served him communion. And he, he was so beat up by cancer. when I, I, had to, I had to tip his head back and pour the communion juice into his mouth and it all dripped down his chin, but he was, he was so blessed. You could tell he was spiritually nourished by that, by our presence. And it was a gift to be part of that. I didn't just call the guy and say, hey, you know, see you on the other side. There's, there's a blessing about incarnational ministry. Now, what we're seeing in our culture is a movement. And I think it's of the devil, ultimately, is a movement away from incarnational ministry. And this didn't happen in the church. It's happening. It has happened in culture. And the church, not being thoughtful, not being conscious of what's going on in culture, I think is starting to adapt incorrectly to cultural norms. So if you think about our culture, think about the things that have gone on in the last 20, 30, even up to 40 years that We're so used to them, right? We we participate in these things. But if you actually step back and think about it from a biblical and historical perspective, it's kind of strange. So we have, for example, historically, when people have played games together, right? They they come together. You throw the cards on the table, or you get out the board game, or you step onto the soccer field, or you get the football out. And when, when you're playing a game, you're doing it in the presence of someone else. And while these things still happen, there's been this massive uptake in video games. Now, video games in and of themselves are not like you know, the devil's handiwork necessarily. I mean, some of them are. They're pretty, some of them can be pretty crass. But it's interesting how we've created a culture where people are essentially just entertaining themselves in the absence of physical presence around other people. And when you do that for hundreds of hours a year, That's going to shape and change your understanding of relationships. We have text messages, and they can be super convenient. But there's many people, their entire relationship is just text messages. Uh, We have virtual relationships. We have people, shockingly, that participate in virtual sex, which is a complete oxymoron. But they create false views of sex and then share images and whatnot, and that's supposed to provide some sort of sexual gratification. So all of these things illustrate this movement in culture toward disconnectedness. You can have virtual sex. You can have a virtual dating relationship. You can play virtual games. And now we have the church saying, well, here's a good idea. Why don't we have virtual church? I mean, everything else is virtual. Why not have virtual church? It's getting so bad that there's a church in Oregon that has now result, resorted to virtual baptisms. So what you do is you create an avatar, basically a digital image of yourself. You go into this alt space online. The pastor shows up as an avatar, and that one avatar baptizes the other avatar, and that is considered a genuine Christian baptism. And people are like, this is a genius idea. Why didn't we think about this before? Now, brothers and sisters, think about who you are and how God has created you. They tell us that we live in, at one of the most connected points of history. We're all connected. But I actually think we're more disconnected than ever before because our connectedness is artificial. We're connected to people through online gaming. We're connected to people through online re- dating relationships. We're, we're connected to people now through online church. Now, last time I checked, back in Eden, when God created Adam, even prior to sin entering into the world, God identified a problem. The problem was is that Adam was alone. His problem wasn't peer pressure. His problem wasn't opioid addiction. His problem was that he was alone. It's not good for man to be alone. God has called us into community. And what we observe, anecdotally, and all of you that are are mature adults will, will, will understand this, if you have a broad range of relationships, when you interact with people whose lives are very virtual, They spend a lot of time gaming. They spend a lot of time by themselves. They spend a lot of time watching television. They never pick up a phone. They never actually go out with people. They tend to text a lot and email a lot. What do we notice about people like this? They're socially awkward. They don't know how to conduct themselves in relationships. They're conflict avoidant. You know, we have people that literally break up with their boyfriends and girlfriends through text messaging. It's the most absurd thing ever. You're in a relationship, and the best a person can get out of you is a text message when you've broken up. There's a whole generation that thinks this is normal behavior. People stay single. Why? One of the greatest problems in our culture today is people being literally incompetent to have a relationship with a member of the opposite sex. And why? Because for years and years and years, maybe even decades, they've never talked to a person of the opposite sex in any meaningful way. They've never had any sort of up-close-and-personal dialogue or relationship. They've never had to work through conflict. They've never had to express their love and feelings with their words. People that literally, they hardly know how to speak anymore. Because they've never developed their communication skills. They're addicted to virtual relationships and online behavior. They're lonely. Many of them become financially stuck. Again, I'm speaking in broad categories. This is the consequence of living in a virtual world and disconnecting ourselves from relationships when God has created us as relational beings. The question is, is the church going to be complicit in that? Or is the church going to be the church, a place for the lonely, find connectedness where people can be hugged and held and ministered to and learn to have a conversation and learn to actually dialogue with another human being and exchange ideas and debate back and forth. One of the things that we need to understand about ourselves is all of us constantly need, this is the way I like to think about it, we constantly need to be adjusted. We're all... A little broken, a little off. We're not quite where we need to be. And what relationships do is they constantly provide an adjustment. They adjust us. So when someone says something to us a little awkward, we we adjust. We have to figure out how to respond. When someone confronts us about something, we adjust. We, We have to respond. When someone encourages us, we adjust. We have to respond. When someone presents us with information, we have to fact check it and we have to consider it. People that are socially healthy, mentally healthy, spiritually healthy, are all people that are involved in a robust and expansive network of relationships. And what those relationships do is they always provide these these micro-adjustments to our behavior. This is why it's vital for us to be part of the family of God. How did Timothy was blessing the church through incarnational ministry? And as he spent time in this church, he he heard them share their longings, their mourning, their zeal for the gospel ministry. And he blessed them and was blessed in return. It's fundamental in the body of Christ for us to be together. Secondly, there's a blessing of resolved conflict. Most of us are on some level conflict avoidant. Like, I don't think anybody gets up in the morning and says, you know what, I'd like to have some good conflict today. I'd like to have a good old fight with someone. We don't like conflict. It's, it's awkward. It's, it doesn't make us feel good. We like to avoid conflict. But we know this, that in relationships, properly re- received, God uses conflict to help us to persevere, which we all need, We all need a little more courage, a little more grit. And he uses conflict to sanctify us. So we know, because we've already been studying this book for a while, that Paul had written a letter to them previous called the painful letter. We don't have a record of it. It would be fascinating to be able to read it. I was thinking about that last night. I'd like to be able to read it, but we don't have it. But some sort of a conflict letter had to go out to the Corinthian church, and it caused them pain. But Paul continues to come back to this because he had seen how this letter had served to sanctify and build up the church. Verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Why? Because he's mean? Because he liked to see them squirm and feel uncomfortable? No. Read on. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you. So humanly, he wasn't excited about seeing them in a, a point of a position of pain. Didn't like that. But he says to them, but because you were grieved into repenting. I think I might have missed a verse there. Let me reread beginning with verse 8. For even if I made you grieve in my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. And then here's that key insight. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. There was a redemptive benefit to this conflict that he'd had with his church. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Hmm, that's a fascinating insight. And it's a great reminder in an age where in many churches, as soon as the sheep are confronted by the shepherd, they flee to another church. They flee to another church. Happens all the time. When we're confronted by the word of God, we tend to flee. And we have all our patent excuses while the Lord's calling us elsewhere. (laughs) Yeah, right. Maybe, but often no. No. Ah, we've outgrown the church. OK? Maybe, but probably not. We have these whole list of excuses, because in our humanity, we're prideful and arrogant, and we don't want to be adjusted. It's uncomfortable. We don't want to be convicted. We don't want to be confronted. In our humanity, we don't even want to be led. So Paul's like, hey, I know it caused you pain. And humanly, it bothered me that it caused you pain, but ultimately it led to your repentance. And so it was, it was worth it. He goes on to issue this declaration about repentance in general. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, I love this next phrase, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of... Of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Let's just all acknowledge together that it's hard to confront sin and injustice. It's much, much easier, much easier to stay silent. Much easier. We've learned this time and time again in our church. When we've had to confront matters of church discipline, we've had to take a stand on issues, it would be much easier, much easier for us to just zip the lips, write it out, hope for the best. Just fly under the radar, not say anything, not have those hard conversations. That would be much easier. But it's much more deadly. And it does not lead to our maturity. We stay immature if we do that. Yes, it grieves us to see others grieved. I was confronting someone recently and it it grieved me to know that my words brought them pain and I acknowledged that. bothered me. Literally brought a tear to my eye. But you do it because you know that ultimately it benefits them if they respond to it. This is what makes confrontation worthwhile. When we confront, the Bible says, for godly grief produces repentance, which is change, a change word. It's not just an attitudinal word that leads to salvation without regret. Now, the converse is godly grief, you know that, that sense of being condemned or just being confronted by someone that hates you and doesn't love you, that just leads to death. That, that sucks life from you. You know, the boss that yells at you, he doesn't have your best interest in mind, he just has his own best interest in mind. He yells at you and maybe he mistreats you as his employee. He doesn't have your best interest in mind, he's thinking about himself. He's not principle-centered, he's not driven by some biblical ethic, he's just thinking about himself. That, That doesn't bless anybody, that just leads to death, indignation and the like. But the process of sanctification is clear to us here. The process of sanctification is grief towards sin, which leads to salvation, which leads to no regret. And if you go back to verse 12, um, actually, I think I'll take you to verse 11 first. It says, Foresee what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves. So in other words, what's going on there is, having been confronted, the Corinthians are like, oh, well, well we need to like, up our game. We need to clear ourselves of accusation. We need to make changes. We don't, we don't want people to, to ever accuse us of this again. So it serves to their benefit to be confronted because it, it motivates them to change. And then he goes on to say, what indignation what indignation at sin, uh, what fear, what fear to be called out again, what longing, what zeal, what a, de- a desire for Christ-like living. So when, when we confront each other, and whether it's just like a, a micro-confrontation where we just make some little comment to adjust another person's behavior, or whether it's some major you know, church discipline event, whatever it might be, Properly done within the body of Christ in the context of loyal relationships where people aren't going to cut and run, but they're going to stick it out. It it adjusts us and it blesses us and it gives us motive to want to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is why it's all worthwhile. It's worthwhile. And all of that goes away if we just zip our lips and never confront and never call each other out. Uh, once in a while I go to the chiropractor and the chiropractor doesn't lay you down in the bed and say, okay, um, this is your date. This is the only time you're ever going to be here. I'm going to do a once and for all adjustment and for the rest of your life, you're going to be perfect. No, The chiropractor does, we'll call them micro adjustments. Does a little adjusting here, a little adjusting here and then says, okay, I want you to come back a week from now or two weeks from now or a day from now or whatever it might be. And then you come back. And over time, as the chiropractor makes those micro-adjustments, now everything's kind of in place and you feel healthy and functional. And it's the same in the Church of Jesus Christ. No one is sanctified overnight. No one's sanctified overnight. You don't go to Bible college for three years and come out totally sanctified. You don't join a church. And you you're know, five years in, you get your sanctification certificate. We're always in the process of being sanctified. I've been walking with Christ for over 40 years and I'm still uh, discovering things about myself that God has not yet, didn't previously reveal, but I need to change. We're always being adjusted. And this is all part of the sanctification process. And so we should embrace that. Our confrontation with one another is actually part of our growth in holiness. And then third, there is the blessing of spiritual growth. This is why we need to be together the blessing of spiritual growth. The second part of verse 13 reads, and beside our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. So this is the preacher. This is the minister that was sent in because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything... He said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Notice they received him with fear and trembling because they knew he was going to crack a whip or two. But because they were ultimately blessed by it, Everybody ended up rejoicing. Paul loved to see people's lives refreshed. He loved to see people repent. He loved to see people grow in righteousness. It just blessed him. Titus loved it. It blessed Timothy. It blessed the church. And in the end, everybody won and was blessed as they saw each other being adjusted, being sanctified, becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we have this... um, image in the life of the church that there's like the clergymen you know that the Aaron rocks and they just stand up front and they tell us what to do and where to go and how to think and you know they just feed directly from the font of god's grace and then they you know dis, dispense it out to the underlings in the church we have this strange notion probably from uh, catholic history more than anything else but that's not the biblical image of church the Bible talks about authority, but I am blessed by you and you're hopefully blessed by me because we're all ultimately brothers and sisters in Christ. And we may have different roles to play in the church. I mean, Timothy came to minister and was ministered to. Think about that. Timothy came to minister and to be ministered to. Paul sent, or sorry, Titus came to minister and was ministered to. Paul sent Titus to the church. And through that, he was ministered to by the church. So both parties benefited. The church was blessed by Titus and Paul's ministry. And Titus and Paul were blessed by the church's ministry. Titus was refreshed by the church. And the church was refreshed by Titus. That's mutual ministry. So I'll just say, like, to use a very contemporary example, I believe one of the reasons why I'm feeling very encouraged and very strong right now in my faith and in my stance is because of you. Because of you. You're relentless in prayer. You're relentless in obedience to the word of God. You're relentless in standing for truth. I don't think I could do this without you. So you might say, well, you know, thanks, Aaron, for taking a stand. Well, okay, you know, thanks for the encouragement. But to a large degree, you deserve the credit. Because it's your prayers and your encouragement to me. And I can speak on behalf of all of our elders who feel exactly the same way. Hugely blessed by this church. You're ministering to us as we are ministering to you. And this is the biblical paradigm. We see here in the text. Mutual ministry. Not the professionals ministering to the underlings. But brothers and sisters in Christ in a spiritual household with different roles to play, all mutually ministering to one another and building each other up in the faith. And folks, that is unique to the church of Jesus Christ. You're not going to find that anywhere else. And all other organizations and institutions are fundamentally founded on this notion of selfish gratification or satisfaction Um, You know, whether you're in an educational institution where everyone's trying to, you know, one up the other and get a better review than the person next to them or, you know, get the principalship or the tenured professorship or whatever it might be, politicking, it's all polluted by a measure of selfishness. But in the church, we mutually bless each other to the honor and glory of our true leader and King, Jesus Christ, God Himself. So, having witnessed this kind of growth, we can be confident of more to come. As you re-enter this nasty world, let's remind ourselves of how beautiful it is to be part of the church. Let's commit ourselves to loyal relationships through thick and thin to bless each other and encourage each other in the faith once and for all entrusted to the saints. Let's commit ourselves to mutually encourage by being a presence in one another's lives. And by testifying, as this church did, to God's sanctifying work. Tell those stories of what God is teaching you. Point people to the scripture passages that God's been blessing you with lately. Pray with one another. Tell your stories of God at work. Third, work through conflict. Be relentless in working through conflict. Resolution might take months or years. But don't cut and run. Don't bail out as soon as the... Ship starts to encounter some rough surges. Stick it out knowing that God will sanctify you through his people. And then find great joy, as this church found. Find great joy in the growth of others. God is sanctifying his church more than ever before in our lifetimes. I really believe that. And he will continue to sanctify us, continue to mature us as we stay faithfully obedient to the high calling of Christ. And part of that is about living life together as a spiritual family under the leadership of our ultimate Father, our God and our Savior.